Hi, I'm John Vogel, Art Director of Talking Writing, and in this special episode of our podcast, we put the spotlight on art and politics. Now that the midterm elections have arrived in the United States, we encourage all American citizens to vote. Election Day is November 8th. But more than that, we want readers and listeners to consider how creativity is impacted by politics and the many ways we can remake the world with art. Talking writing contributors have often responded to real-world events and social concerns in our themed issues, including climate change, immigration, gun violence, and discrimination of all sorts. During the fraught spring of 2020, we had to suspend regular publication at the start of the global pandemic, but TW still put together a special feature during those lockdown months called Writing in Crisis, in which our contributors responded emotionally and artistically to what was happening. In this podcast episode, we highlight work in our current issue as well as related pieces from the archives. Over the years, many TW poets have recorded themselves reading their work, and we have a deep backlist of audio poetry. Here, you'll hear poems that address both the beauty of the world and political challenges, some accompanied by my original music. We've also mixed in a few interview clips and comments by various contributors. And woven throughout the episode, TW publisher and founder Martha Nichols reads excerpts from her new essay in Talking Writing, Is History Wasted on Everyone? We open this first set with Martha reading the beginning of her essay. That's followed by Autumn Quartet, a poem by Juana Rosa Pita, translated by Aaron Goodman, and read here in English and Spanish. After the poem, writer Mark Brzezetis comments about why creating art matters as part of a celebration of our 10th anniversary issue in fall 2020. Let's begin with Martha. Is history wasted on everyone? My father wanted me to love history. I don't recall him ever saying he loved history himself. Love, in all its untapped depth, sounds like my word rather than his. It's possible, though. A political scientist in the mid-1970s, he marched me through a college textbook during my senior year of high school in preparation for the American History Achievement Test. He was appalled by the lack of history I'd been exposed to in my public school. Yet I think he enjoyed the challenge, too, the chance to combat my ignorance and misdirected passion. Probably all I remember of the Louisiana Purchase or the Alamo is from those long-ago grill sessions with him. But it's all turned shadowy as well. The dates, the main players, unless I Google to pin down a fact. If life were a flipbook, my father would age every few flicks of a fingernail, but keep shaking his head at me as the decades stuttered by, telling his darling daughter, his words, that history is wasted on the young. Autumn Quartet 1. Among its confusions, life gives us chords to form little musical jewels. 2. October arrives, gray, yet the cold doesn't reach homes where fires blaze. Three, silence only reigns if it harbors complicit intentions. 
articulated by a gaze. Four, one word suffices for the inner sea to unfurl a melody. Cuarteto de Otoño Uno Entre sus confusiones la vida nos da acordes con que hacer joyeles de música. Dos Octubre llega gris no obstante el frío no se siente donde es de casa el fuego. Tres Solo vive el silencio si custodia intenciones cómplices que la mirada enuncia. 4. Una palabra basta para que del mar íntimo se desate una melodía. Despite the changes in media in the past 10 years, the essential task of poets and prose writers remains the same, to connect with readers in ways that will astonish, console, and entertain them with the beauty and power of words, with insights into the human condition that remind us what it means to be thinking and feeling beings on a troubled planet, with vivid passages to worlds, physical, spiritual, and cerebral, we would not have otherwise been able to visit. Is all or any of this possible in a tweet or an Instagram post? Tweets are or can be the new haiku. Instagram posts are flash nonfiction, and whether they appear between book covers or in an online journal on a computer screen, a story is a story, a poem is a poem, an essay is an essay, and the really good ones change our lives. You're listening to a special episode of the Talking Writing Podcast about art and politics. In this next set, Martha Nichols reads the second scene from her essay, Is History Wasted on Everyone? Jenny Chi follows with a reading of her poem, Hello Brother. Jenny's poem begins with the shooting at the Al Noor Mosque in Christchurch, New Zealand in 2019. She combines it with references to the ancient Chinese Seven Steps Verse. This set closes with a comment by one of our featured visual artists, Mercury Marvin Sunderland, which was part of our Writing in Crisis feature at the start of the pandemic. What is something you want people in the future to know about your experience? On Election Day 2020, I saw this question posted on a lawn sign, and just like that, I heard my father's voice again. Maybe he even steered me to look at the sign when I went out for a walk. I don't mean with the literal touch of a skeletal hand. If an atheist could be said to have an afterlife, he'd be howling at the thought, but with his fierce questioning throughout my life. I wished many things on that election day, but the biggest was to have my father with me, whole and alive. He'd always pushed me to vote, made sure I was registered for my first election, told me to get more involved in electoral politics. I didn't believe in omens, but at my own house, one of the Biden-Harris signs had blown down by our driveway. It was the first thing I saw when I opened the door. 
I fixed it, telling myself to get a grip. Tuesday, November 3rd, 2020, was alternately bright and shadowy in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Gorgeous, but in the low 40s. As I walked alone, the wind whipped brown and gold leaves into spirals. I scuffed through piles that would have thrilled me as a girl in Hayward, California. Brattle Street was quiet before noon, with only a few passing cars and masked people. I thought I had the mission for this expedition down. Then I saw that sign with the question outside the Hooper Lee Nichols House, headquarters of the Cambridge Historical Society. It was next to other lawn signs with quotes from Cambridge residents, part of the Historical Society's Cambridge and COVID-19 collection online. Some sample responses. Life changed dramatically in a very short time. I am doing okay, but I am starting to feel as though my life has no purpose. I took a few notes on my iPhone. I let my mask slip under my nose so that my glasses wouldn't fog. Nobody else was nearby on Brattle Street. I'd checked because checking the distance from other humans had become a habit, the way I look for oncoming traffic. What is history? All the stuff that happened, Dad. How do you know it really happened? It's all written down, like here. Honey, you don't understand. When my father would tell me history is wasted on the young, he knew I resented it. But living in San Francisco in the 1980s, I had danced away from history in clubs like the I-Beam. Then it was all fear of Cold War annihilation and nuclear winter, Madonna, Prince, Yasser Arafat, benighted ventures like the Falklands. The country was spinning itself into some glittering simulcrum of wealth and forgetfulness. I didn't want money, but I wanted to remake my own history, which seemed small and pathetic without the right kind of bravery. Maybe I'm old enough now, Dad. I realize how hard it is to retrieve what's been lost. You were like Atticus Finch to me, or Gregory Peck playing Atticus Finch, both your kindness and cynicism flashing from hazel eyes under heavy, dark brows. You like to mock your own failures, your unbending moral compass. I want my history to be the story of you with me now, in the ever-morphing, impossible now, where my brilliant father explains calmly why people are so hateful, where I tell you, a ghost I'll always love, how hard it is to remember. You would hold my hand. We'd look at the lawn sign together. You'd snort a laugh. Hello, brother, called out the man at the open door, beckoning the stranger into Alnor, the light. The stranger approached, opened fire into prayers, prayers. The wounded tried to crawl away or lie still, while others ran or crouched behind the dead. Piles of motionless men and boys in a house of worship. I think of a story I heard in childhood from a warring factioned China, 220 AD. Hello, brother, called out the poet Cao Zhi, summoned to court for execution. 
The new emperor demanded Cao Zhi compose a poem within seven steps. The poet said, Zhu dou ran dou qi, dou zai fu zhong qi, ben shi tong gen sheng, shang jian he tai ji. Beans boil by beanstalk's flame. From the pot cries the beans. From the same root we once came, why burn each other now so urgently? Remembering their careless toddling days, the emperor wept, sent his brother away. The poem became known as Seven Steps Verse, its origin story defining transcending kin. Seven Steps Verse mirrors seven verses in the opening of the Quran, seven steps of pilgrimage, seven gates to heaven and hell, seven days of creation in Genesis, seven days of mourning sitting Shiva, seven times seventy times forgiveness. At least one nearby resident opened her home to shelter people fleeing the mayhem. Please save us, pray for us, lying on the blood-soaked green carpet. Beans boil by beanstalk's flame, from the same root we once came. One of my closest friends died a slow and painful death by disease two weeks before my 20th birthday this summer. Living during a pandemic after losing someone to illness has been really difficult, and all I'm really trying to do is survive. I've, I've had a lot of death in my life recently because I also recently lost two of my other friends to suicide. I think just the fact that not even my grandparents lived through a global pandemic has made it really hard for me to control my fear of loss at a time like this. What I can say has worked is that I've been making sure to use my DBT skills and to read, write, draw, study, and submit to literary magazines every day. Being surrounded by so much death has taught me how important it is to do the things you live for because you never really know how much time you've got left. Art and politics. Politics and art. Can they ever be separated? In this third set, we return to Is History Wasted on Everyone? with Martha Nichols reading another scene from her essay. Alice Major then reads Path Integral, a poem about politics and math, accompanied by my music. This set closes with founding poetry editor Carol Dorff reading her poem, If Not Now. In the 1970s, my mother converted everything she observed in the Bay Area swirl of politics and music into large canvases crammed with people. Their faces and bodies were hyper-real, limbed with the heavy outlines of Alice Neal, a painter she admired. Mom called her own paintings people pictures, basing them on photos from Time magazine or memory. 
They often included my father and me and my brother or one of her Italian relatives back east, although never her own father, who'd refused to come to their wedding. My grandfather, the Don, as Dad referred to him sardonically, hadn't approved of the penniless academic. Being Sicilian was her code for anything that went emotionally haywire. So was being an artist. Her people would be standing on a BART platform back when the Bay Area rapid transit system was still new. Or a crowd would spill down a hill that was eternally spring green, nuns and skinny guys and cardigans hanging out with Frida Kahlo or the Mona Lisa. Mom's people might have been waiting for a decades-old band to play, like local favorites Tower of Power or the Pointer Sisters. They might have been displaced by fires or earthquakes. Some of the paintings now hang in my Cambridge home, her people staring at viewers in both defiance and pain. I could be analytical in the way my father taught me, calling them a form of history except he was the one who titled her paintings, his words like koans. He was a poet at heart, even before retiring and writing poetry himself, and it's hard to separate the art from my mother. Her supercharged colors, flowers with petals like tongues, monkeys and tigers that look human, they're a portrait of her internal turmoil. They're a reminder, too, of what happens when turmoil ignites in a crowd, when everyone feels trapped and wants out. Path Integral I'm angry about anger, this all-too-easy sheet of flame with its ever-ready pilot-like prepared to sweep the brain, this coil of neurobiology the braided lash that rounds us up into obedient legions to be hectored from lecterns. They're taking things away from you, those hidden elites, those threatening other colored others. This fetter fastened around our necks, a convenient collar where demagogues can attach the leash. I want to poke around inside the brain, unroll the wrinkled cortex into a flat, creased sponge, and map anger's coordinates. Along the x-axis, half a billion years of animals trying to survive by fighting back. Along the y-axis, the logarithmic scale of primate generations, social structures becoming as convoluted as a coraled reef, anger rearing up when others break the rules. And Z, the dimension of the individual life, its traumas and tender spots. On this stretched out cortex, I want to locate anger's many domains, bile and choler, ire and indignation, aggression and rage, and trace the path that chain them. Where is the fury that is close to joy, its luxurious purity? Where do we locate the sullen burn of grudge? Where do I find the domain anger shares with religion, our 
gods of righteous wrath and war with their foreheads of bronze or steel? Where is that narrow territory where unnecessary rage roars up when I'm hurt by something as minor as a stubbed toe? Surely knowing this territory would help us negotiate these fragile, fractious times. But the map bewilders me, the infinite calculation of its tangled functions its derivatives, its boundaries. I can't compute the area covered by anger, nor the sum over histories of its evolving wave that rolls through brains and time and populations. I can't sum up this cortical compulsion that traps us, this power we hand over to noisy purveyors of conflict. The dog flings itself barking wildly at the fence and its mirror dog beyond. If not now, do you want to see me in that alternate version of our lives? I would like you to know I'm an expert in determining one fabric in relation to another. Don't be sorry to call. I accept communications and feel little compunction to refrain from hanging up. No one would know looking at me now, but I could pogo for most of a party and then shout slogans at the demo the next morning. You sing about bombs, disruption. Let me ask you, what comes next? In this special episode about art and politics, talking writing contributors keep asking what's next. How can artists engage with and remake a disrupted world? Can we vote for art as well as political candidates? Yes, everyone, please vote for art. Martha Nichols opens this last set by reading one of the final scenes of her essay. She's followed by poet Alan King reading The Land of Innocence, which is accompanied by my music and an opening clip of a news report about George Floyd's murder. Comments by Anjan Chatterjee from his interview in our current issue come next, with Anjan talking about arts funding, or the lack of funding. This is followed by remarks from a TW featured visual artist, Daryl Urban Black. Daryl's images and comment were part of our Writing in a Crisis feature in spring 2020. Martha closes the episode with the last scene of her essay, Is History Wasted on Everyone? I have no problem tearing down false monuments or myths about the wrong heroes. No doubt I get the bitterness and need for exactitude from my father. That same fierce gleam went on the trail to uncover what actually happened or didn't. But before his death in early 2014, I watched that gleam fade. He was still capable of surveying all that unraveled around him including my parents' modest ranch house. Eventually, they had to default on the mortgage. 
Before he was moved into a care home, I remember Dad in a gray sweatshirt sitting in a favorite easy chair, backlit by the sliding glass doors to their deck of ceramic pots and prickly pears and a lemon tree. He grimaced a smile, clearly aware he was about to offend me. In a low voice, he might have raised professorially without the Parkinson's disease. My father described his solution for poverty in the United States. Make the poor do eight-hour shifts chained to a giant wheel. They'd walk in circles that went nowhere, but at least they could generate electricity. On Election Day 2020, so-called patriots were claiming they needed to arm themselves for the next revolution, and I wondered then if history is wasted on everyone. I still do, and not because I have amazing prescience. I won't say I sensed what was to come on that sparkling cold November day, two months before the U.S. Capitol riot on January 6th. But maybe I already knew, through my mother and her mental illness, how chaos takes over. When the New York Times compiled video footage of the Capitol riot six months later, I saw the same glassy, giddy eyes and people hurling bike racks at cops or screaming, this is our house. It was as if one of my mother's paintings had come to life, the nun in the middle roaring through a bullhorn. Chaos is a gaping seam in the orderly surface that everybody wants to believe in, exposing how much we can't control what happens next. Windows staved in, barricades down, a mob runs straight out of the picture frame. Dad, when you were at your lowest ebb, I think you were staring at this truth. It's an emotional truth people on both ends of the political spectrum might accept. Yet even if we all share this knowledge in our bones, it goes nowhere. Chaos is the opposite of history. Protesters have clashed with police in cities across the U.S. over the killing of an unarmed African-American man at the hands of officers in Minneapolis. Hundreds of people rallied outside the White House, which was briefly put under lockdown on Friday, demanding justice over the death of George Floyd. Demonstrations have been taking place in Minnesota, in New York, and California. A former Minneapolis police officer has been arrested and charged with murder over the death of George, in and he is now in custody. The Land of Innocence for Jade Rose and George Floyd. A YouTube clip shows a protest ignited after police killed George Floyd. Torched SUVs, overturned cop cars, armored officers retreating. All of that sinks my wife into a deeper postpartum, having made it through our personal crisis. We watched the python of despair coil itself around America, blowing out glass storefronts and colliding angry bodies as the tension constricts and crushes. We're miles from the mayhem, but a different kind of danger finds us in the maternity ward. A decreasing heartbeat, frenzied nurses rushing my wife to the OR, surgeons scrambling to save our daughter. 
Watching the news, I'm reminded of slogans on chaos as necessity. Real discoveries come from chaos. Chaos is beautiful and full of fertility. But when it's a violent pattern of reactions, what's the real discovery? Where's the beauty in things shattered and tagged? If the same pattern of injustice ripples our lives, maybe chaos isn't the right word. Let's try instead challenge. And since it means refuting the truth or validity of it, isn't a protest a public dispute of someone else's truth? Like the one about the fear of dark bodies, how it justifies them being mangled or discredited in news cycles. Wouldn't the beauty then be new laws that get us closer to becoming the people the Constitution claims it protects? Let me begin again. When my wife told me several months ago she was pregnant, we knew the challenge of this birth could take her life, just as the challenge in the hospital threatened our daughters. And isn't it an act of faith to go blindfolded into the future and be delighted by the light there? Now we're lit by a dancing star named Jade. Short for Jadishala, which in Yoruba means come into wealth. She's jade like the green stone said to emit wisdom and clarity. I'm feeding her while watching the YouTube video. Someone on screen yells, we're better than this. And she squeals, mouth dripping with her mother's milk. Smiling while dreaming her baby dreams. That land of innocence where it all starts before we lose our way back rationalizing our destruction. With art, I feel like there's a common, it's common to come up against a lot of resistance in terms of uh, studying, in terms of spending your time on something practical. Do you feel like uh, you've encountered that same sort of resistance in going into the science of art, uh, is there like a same sort of resistance in terms of gaining funding and stuff like that? Yeah, it's huge. Um, I think the, the reason, one of the reasons this as a field is so young is that there isn't funding for it. Um, I started the Penn Center for Neuroesthetics three years ago. Uh, when I look back at my finances, which I had to do for my advisory board, uh, I've been a faculty member for 30 years, and we've always had to have funding for our research. Uh, the first 26 years, it was all NIH, NSF, and the last four years, no federal funding. Um, so uh, the funding for studying the arts or aesthetics in general is, uh, at a federal level, is non-existent uh, right now in the US. My sense is it's a little bit different in Europe, possibly in China, where there is a, a more explicit um, encouragement and explicit value, valuation of the arts and culture in a way that the American sensibility tends to be, you know, what can we, what can we solve? What's, how's technology going to solve our problems? Uh, and if art can do that, maybe, but you know, but art for art's sake is just not something that seems built into the American ethos. Hello, this is artist Daryl Urban Black. 
And my escape from the coronavirus crisis is my creativity and limited contact with friends and family. The words I find most comforting during the pandemic are words of unity, that everyone on earth has a part to play in this tragedy and no role is trivial. With the hope provided by healthcare workers, scientists, and public officials that humanity will survive and continue in a post-pandemic world. So that is my wish. And um, as artists, we also create artworks that reflect the times, the unfortunate times of the coronavirus. But the artwork we're creating is to tell a story that uh, people can relate to. We can only hope that things will get much better in the future for all of us. Have a good day. What is something you want people in the future to know about your experience? I can tell you that my father, the amateur historian, the ultimate moralist, used to send me books about William Jennings Bryan and Martha Gellhorn and Leigh Hunt and so many writers and politicians who fascinated him. He'd go to the little bookstore in downtown Hayward, which had been started by a former student of his. Dad would ask them to order titles he'd picked out as Christmas or birthday gifts and then send them on to me. Sometimes I still find his notes on lined paper stuck between the pages. In 2006, he wrote in crabbed script, For your birthday, here's a dilly of a study in American history, and of course it's linked to me. He went on to describe how much my grandmother idolized the populist rabble-rouser William Jennings Bryan, who ran for president as the Democratic nominee several times, the last in 1908, but never won. In the margin of this note, my father apologized for the terrible handwriting. Looks something like my mother's when she got old. She used to write me on little bitty pieces of paper. I can tell you, people in the future, to keep writing it down. My father's story isn't a waste, even if too much is unknowable to me. It's possible he gave in to fatalism, passing it down through generations of fatalists. He may have been right, but he also may have been wrong, and so history is no longer wasted on me. It's my spur to shout into the whirlwind. I can tell you, people, I still worry about abandoning hope. You'll hear my fear, the grief I can't shake off, because the older I get, the harder it is to ignore that life changes. Parents die, and there's no one left to explain. History changes. It's the equivalent of clouds with shadowy edges forming and reforming as they race across the sky. It's the wind itself that change, a cliché that isn't just a cliché. You don't need a pandemic or bad election or hearings about a government insurrection to feel it. History is a living thing, not a story told by somebody else. The stories are the shadow, but you are living history now, as I lived it one day in 2020, when I realized I want to tell you about the people I saw, the bright light, the music, my parents, 
these moments, they matter. Thanks for listening to this Spotlight episode about art and politics on the Talking Writing Podcast. Now get out there and vote if you haven't already, and remain hopeful, resilient, and creative, whatever the outcome. Please visit TalkingWriting.com to read our current issue and for much more about the creative life. And drop us a line at editor at TalkingWriting.com. <laughs>